Let me encourage you to open your Bibles to the Gospel according to John and the fourth chapter. John chapter 4. We're beginning this new year by focusing on the subject of worship. And last week we talked about the Lord Jesus and his encounter with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And how we need to learn to drink deeply from Jesus Christ. For he is indeed the living water. When the Lord Jesus said to the woman, everyone who drinks from this water, and this is verse 14, verse 13, everyone who drinks from this water will thirst again. That is the natural water from the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I give them, they will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them, give them will become in them a spring of water welling up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to come, have to keep coming here to draw water. I'm sure you understand the word sarcasm. We use it quite often in our own relationships with people. It is the cornerstone of humor. Sometimes it is the way that we bitingly get back at someone with a rather strong retort. Sarcasm can be mockery where we convey our contempt for someone. It can be scoffing, expressing unbelief, or perhaps surprise. It is often an attempted humor that can go horribly wrong. And it often depends on the tone of your voice. So you can say something that sounds rather good, <laughs> but the tone of your voice lets us know you actually mean the opposite. So you, you might be, uh, oh, I don't know, doing some work on your car and someone comes by and says, nice job. Now they might mean nice job or nice job, <laughs> that you've made a total mess of it. And with the tone of their voice, they can change the meaning. Sometimes uh, these quotes become, I think, rather humorous. And indeed, almost insightful. Oscar Wilde has a quote that I enjoy. He says, some people cause happiness wherever they go, others whenever they go. <laughs> that little irony and turn of phrase. George Bernard Shaw once said, the trouble with that person is that they lack the power of conversation, but not the power of speech. And so sometimes it is, again, that uh, coming back at someone in a sharp way so as to affect them. Do you think God ever uses sarcasm? I think we miss a lot of the sarcasm in the Bible because we just read over it and we don't pause to meditate on what's really happening. One of the best examples of God's sarcasm in the Bible is found in the Old Testament story of Elijah with the prophets of Baal. 
And when you hear what Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, it's clearly understood that he's using sarcasm. They're praying that Baal might answer, and he's doing nothing. So Elijah says, pray a little harder. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's gone to the bathroom. This is exactly what the Hebrew says, actually, in a little more pointed way. <laughs> Yell louder. It's all sarcasm. Do you think Jesus ever uses sarcasm? Possibly so. In fact, I think the woman is using sarcasm in John chapter 4 and verse 15. So here, the woman says to Jesus, and we read it, sir. In fact, some translations have it, please, sir. But there's no please in the original text. Please, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and I won't have to keep coming here to draw water. It sounds like a request. You told me there's living water. I'm all excited about that living water. Could you please give me that living water? I don't think that's what she's saying at all. I think the New English uh, Bible has a translation that maybe helps us out a little bit. And think of it in a more sarcastic tone. Jesus said, if you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. Again, she said, sir, give me that water. And then I won't be thirsty, and I won't have to keep coming to this well. It's a, it's a statement of shock and surprise. It's a bit of a scoff to what he is saying. She's probably wiping the sweat from her brow. It's the middle of the day. She's hot and tired and comes to this well every day. Living water, so I won't have to come back. Sir, give me that water, so I don't have to keep coming back to this well. And Jesus' response is rather telling. He told her, verse 16, go call your husband and come back. So he changes the subject, right? One of the best ways to deal with sarcasm is kind of a back-in-your-face truth statement. <laughs> now Jesus knew more about her than she knew about herself. She had no idea who this Jew was. No idea that he would understand her history and her past. He said, why don't you go back and get your husband and then come back to me. And now, instead of being sarcastic and um, kind of mocking Jesus or scoffing at his statement, I'm sure she said with a very low tone, I have no husband. Because when you and I are caught flat-footed with the truth and our, and our heart is exposed, we're often ashamed. And the arrogance is gone. And I can just see her putting her head down and saying, I have no husband. Husband. And Jesus says, right on. You're telling me the truth. That's a true statement. <laughs> That's sarcasm. <laughs> what you just said is absolute, absolutely true. The fact is, you've had five husbands and the one you're living with right now is not your husband. What you just told me is true. Sometimes God gets right in our face with truth. Truth about our own heart to wake us up to spiritual realities that we are missing and blessed opportunities that somehow we have not experienced. So what do you do when you're caught flat-footed and your life is exposed and you're embarrassed? What do you do? Change the subject. Let's talk about something else. 
And so that's exactly what she does. Verse 19, no more talk about the husbands, no more talk uh, uh, about the water. She says, uh, I can see that you're a prophet because you know everything about me. That's exactly what she says later on in the text. Here's a man who told me everything I've ever done. I know that you're a prophet. Let's talk about worship. Verse 20, our fathers worship on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem, your mountain. So let's have a debate about the place of worship. By the way, it's interesting. These two places, Mount Gerizim is where the Samaritans worshipped. And we mentioned last week that they had the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, but they denied the rest. So what they had was true, it just wasn't whole. Some believers live with truth, but they don't have it all. They're content with a little bit of truth when they could go much deeper and find rich blessing. I think Mount Gerizim represents worship that is sincere but inadequate. Sincere but often lacking truth. The other place of worship is Jerusalem. That's the mountain in the land of Judea. The hills of Judea have their center of worship it has been for the longest time for the Jebusites and now for the Jews your place of worship is the temple in Jerusalem you know what that kind of worship is that has truth but has lost its heart so Mount Gerizim has worship that is sincere and filled with heart but lacking truth and in Jerusalem they have truth but they're lacking heart by the way, in Bible-believing churches like ours, we have the truth, but we often lack the heart. Let's be honest. We often lack the heart. That's why we need a passage like this. So Jesus addresses that issue of the place. And he says this in verse 21, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans uh, worship what you do not know. That is, you don't have the full understanding of truth. We worship what we know. For salvation has come to the Jews. They have the ordinances. They have the prophets. They have the scriptures. God has brought his his salvation through the Jews, and also they have the Messiah, Jesus himself. Salvation is from the Jews, so they know about worship. Yet, verse 23, a time is coming and has now come. So this isn't just future. This is right now, Jesus says. We're talking 30 AD. It's already true that the place of worship is not important. It's the heart of worship that is important. The time is coming and now is. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Did you notice that phrase in verse 23? 
true worshipers? What does that imply? False worshipers, right? If there is something that is true, there is something that is wrong, something that is right, wrong, true, false. If there is true worship, then there is something less than true worship. It is unacceptable worship. It is false worship. I found it interesting when I was studying worship in the New Testament that the first time the worship is mentioned is in Matthew chapter 2, where the wise men say that they have come to Jerusalem to worship the newborn king. That was true worship. And a few verses later, the second time the word worship is used, it's by King Herod, who said to the wise men, find out where Jesus is, this new king, let me know so I can come and worship him too. That is what we call false worship. Just a couple chapters later, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, Jesus is tempted by the devil in the wilderness, and what does the devil say to him? Bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all these kingdoms. And Jesus, that's false worship. Jesus responds by saying, the word of God says in the book of Deuteronomy, you will worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you worship. That's true worship. A little later on in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, so it was true in Isaiah's day, but it's also true in Matthew's time. He says, many people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. So now you've got another adjective for worship, vain. And what is vain worship? It's the same as false worship. It's the outward activity without the inward reality. It's worship based on the teachings of men, the rules and traditions of men, instead of the revelation of God and an honest heart. So what Jesus is talking about is very important, not only in that day, but also in our day and we need to get a grip on this. I'm telling you, this is one of the most exciting things in the world. Because you were created in the image of God to worship Him. That's the way you were designed. That's the way you were built. That's the way you were wired. And if you do not fulfill the reason for your existence, whatever joy you get on, out of this life is going to be partial. Whatever achievement that you might enjoy is going to be less than it could be because you were made to worship God. Oh, people are worshiping people. All anthropologists will tell you this. It doesn't make any difference where you go in this world. Find a little tribe that's never met other civilizations and they're worshiping. But it's not the true God because they don't have the truth. Unless someone has come and shared the truth with them. A.W. Tozer said, worship is a forgotten art in our day. And he's speaking about our type of churches. That is churches who really believe the Bible and try to follow it. 
Worship is a forgotten art in our day. For whatever may be said of the modern Bible-believing uh, church, Christianity, it can hardly be denied that we are not remarkable for our spirit of worship. The gospel preached by good men in our times may save souls, but it does not create worshipers. You know, one of my greatest fears, again, about Bible-believing Christianity, as Tozer calls it, is that we will fill our heads with truth and not be remarkable for worship. Oh, we criticize others who really get involved in worship and get emotional. We're quick to criticize. But it's kind of like the log in our, the beam in our own eye and the splinter in someone else's. Isn't it? I'm not trying to beat you up this morning. Although up to this point it sounds that way. My goal is to introduce to you and to myself one of the most exciting things that you and I can do this year, and that is to worship God. I mean, worship God. So that's why this passage is so thrilling. It's the reason we were created, and in the end, all things will bow down and worship Him. Read the book of the Revelation. They will cry out, all the angels in heaven, worthy is the Lamb. So what about worship from this text of John chapter 4? Well, first of all, I notice that with regard to the person we worship, that's the first and immediate focus. In other words, worship is about God. It doesn't start with man. It doesn't start with our need. It starts with God's glory. And we must never forget that. Do we have needs in worship? Yes. Are those needs met in worship? Yes. Is that the starting point to determine how we worship? No. Because worship is about God. It is honor paid to a supreme being. So where does worship start with regard to the person that we are worshiping? It starts right here with the beautiful name of Father. You'll notice that this name is given to us in verse 21. Talks about you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. Verse 23 talks about the Father, worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. And it also says in verse 23, the Father is seeking people to worship Him. Which I find to be an incredible statement. But this is where worship starts. So in your concept of God, worship has to have as its stone point this fact that he is loving, he is warm, he is personal. We worship a loving, heavenly, holy Father. He is Father. Just a simple study in the New Testament finds out that this is the term that God loves to be called. When Jesus says, this is how you need to pray, he says, start out with these words, our Father who art in heaven, our Heavenly Father. That's where you start. Focus on the fact that God is your Father. Lord, how do you want us to think of you? How do you want to be known to your people? 
judge was not the first word that comes out of his mouth. Not even Lord or sovereign, but Father. Father. It's a relationship. And it, it's developed in worship. Think of it in Galatians chapter 4. This term Father is connected with our adoption. And we call him Abba, which is a term of endearment. It's tough for us to find one in English. Sometimes we use the word daddy, and I suppose that's okay. But when I hear people praying in public, daddy instead of father, it always makes me cringe. But here I am criticizing someone else's prayer when maybe they're deeper in prayer than I am. I'm very good at criticizing. Very poor at obedience. So maybe somehow I need to understand that God is my father in a deeper, a new way. When my heart is aching, I can cry out to him as my father. I have a position. I have a relationship with him. When he disciplines me, Hebrews chapter 12, it is in that relationship of father. For what father who loves his child does not give them correction? When Jesus is hurting just before he goes to the cross and cries out with tears and uh, drops of sweat like blood, he cries out to his Father. What a gorgeous name. It's warm, it's personal, it draws us to him. And we sang a moment ago, how deep the Father's love for us. Well, that's a good one. Sing that with a believing heart. And it will change you. So that's where it starts. It doesn't stop there, but it starts there. Now what else do we know about the one that we are to worship? He is Spirit. Capital S. Now we're talking about His essence. We're talking about His nature. We're talking about His person. And indeed, when we worship... We are to worship in the Holy Spirit. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3 says that, that we are to worship in spirit, in the spirit, in agreement with the spirit, uh, along with the aid of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is spoken about much in the book of Corinthians when the subject becomes worship and abuse in worship. We are to worship the God who is spirit. Now, I think this is a direct statement in the face of the places of worship. We are so big on externals, and God is very big on internals. Where do we worship? Where do we worship? Now, I'm not saying that it's not important, the ambiance of worship. It's a very interesting study, and to me it seems like people go to extremes. You've got the wonderful cathedrals, which I love to go into. They are amazing. And then you've got new churches being built today that look like a warehouse. And I can tell that you don't like that. We didn't have enough money to build a cathedral. If we did have enough money, we wouldn't have built a cathedral. But we wanted to find a middle place to find maybe the proper ambiance and atmosphere 
for people who live in the 21st century in Northern America who are used to a certain type of worship. The problem is we focus more on the externals. I'm not going to worship in that room. I'm not going to worship in that building. I don't like worshiping over there. I understand we have our preferences, but that's not the the most important thing. God is spirit. And you can worship God outwardly, but not worship God inwardly. You can say the right things with your lips and be in the right place and have the right dress on, the right clothing on, everything to look acceptable. You can look like you're paying attention, but you're not. That's not worship. But what worship is, is your heart connecting with God. That's what worship is. Now, I'm glad you bring your body and not just your spirit to worship. That would be weird. And I'm glad we have a nice place to worship. I've had people tell me, Pastor, you should have made the pews just as hard as could be. Because then, you know, there's sacrifice in worship. (laughs) Well, that's a whole other spirit. but, But if we make it too comfortable... You may not be worshiping. We are worshiping God who is everywhere. This is what it means. It's not about place. It's not about externals. We are to connect heart, ours to heart, God's. He is immaterial. He can be everywhere at once. We can all pray at the same time in different continents. Millions of people praying at the same moment. And God is never confused. Talk about multitasking. God invented it. And it's no problem for him. Because God is spirit. He's not limited by space. He's not limited by time. He loves to be where you are. So you can worship anywhere. But he also calls you to worship with others. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, right? So where are we to worship? Wherever God is. And then at times we want to gather together with other believers to make it corporate, public, unified worship, but still worship God alone. And last week we talked about drinking, drinking deeply from Jesus. It's all about worship. That should happen every day when you take in the word. So he talked about worship with regard to a person. Now he talks about worship with regard to the manner of worship or the way we worship. And he mentions two interesting words. He mentions the word spirit again, but now this is little s. Although we are to worship God through the Holy Spirit, by means of the Holy Spirit... The little s here is our own heart. It is the idea of sincerity. It's the idea of internal. It's the idea of honesty. It's the idea of engagement. Have you ever quoted the Lord's Prayer in public worship services? Let me see your hand. Uh, How many of you grew up in a church that used to do that all the time? Okay, is that a good or a bad practice? Bad, good. (laughs) It can be either one. 
It's scripture being repeated back to God. That's good. But I don't know how many times once I learned that thing by heart, I could say it without even thinking. Say the words and then ask, have you ever, have you ever prayed for your meal, said a word of grace, and then a moment later you say to your wife or husband, did we pray? Well, you were really engaged, weren't you? And you go out of worship and say, did we sing that song? Did we pray that prayer? Blacked out for a moment. So this is what worship is all about. It's about our heart, honestly, sincerely connecting with God. Say the Lord's Prayer. Repetition is not useless unless it's vain. If you think I'll say the same prayer over and over again and 50 times is better than 20 and 100 is better than 50 and the more I say it, the more I get God's ear and the more I say it, the more uh, God has to answer my prayer, you've got the wrong idea. That's vain repetition. But you can pray the same prayer over if you really mean it. God wants us to worship him in heart. By the way, in the Old Testament, when you came to worship, what did you bring? Sacrifice, right? An offering? An animal? Or grain? What do you bring when you worship here? The sacrifices of your heart. How about the sacrifice of a devoted heart? How about the anticipation of an expectant heart? How about the integrity of an honest heart? How about the praises of a grateful heart? How about the contributions of a cheerful heart? How about the confession of a broken heart? How about the obedience of a believing heart? How about the involvement of the whole heart? Lord, I've got some offerings to bring to you. Hebrews 13. I've got some spiritual offerings. It's the fruit of my lips giving praise to you. You don't come empty-handed in new covenant worship either. You come with the praises of God heart to heart. So have you worshipped. And then the other thing is truth. We are to worship him. The time has come where the Father is seeking people to worship him in spirit, honestly, and in truth, biblically. Now that word truth is rather interesting. You could use the word reality as opposed to imagination. But I think the truth here is, uh, could be defined in two other ways. Truth biblically. John chapter 17, 17 says, Sanctify them through my truth. My word is truth. God's word is truth. And we don't know how to worship. We don't know who to worship without the Bible. Take the Bible away and your guess is as good as mine. And we're all confused. It's what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman. You guys don't have the Bible. You don't understand. You're confused. You have a part of the Bible, but not the whole Bible. To take a part out of the whole is false worship. 
But notice this. There's something else in John's gospel that is called truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. After Jesus had had talked about really worship, God is a spirit, verse 24, and his worshipers must, underline that word, you mu- if you want to be a true worshiper, if you want to be one of God's worshipers, you must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman now drawn into the conversation of worship at that level says, I know Messiah is coming and when he comes, he's going to explain all this to us. And Jesus said, you're looking at him. <laughs> the one that is speaking to you is Messiah. It boggles my mind that some so-called Bible scholars will say, Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. What are you talking about? Now, it's true that he didn't make such a confession at this point yet in Jerusalem. That would have caused a riot. But he did in Samaria and said to the woman, you're looking at the Messiah, and I'm explaining it all to you now. Worship is about Jesus We are worshiping the Father by the Spirit through the Savior. And it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you and I have a tendency to substitute a lot of other things in church for worship. Sometimes we think that missions is the most important thing. And I think missions is vitally important. We've been told that if we can just get our church to be a missions church and give more and more money to missions, that's the secret of really being an exciting, vibrant church. And my answer to you is no, that's the wrong answer. I'm not saying missions isn't important. Some will say, well, it's local evangelism. If we could just get this church to be involved in each one reaching one, then we are going to be an evangelistic church and we'll reach all of Lansing. And that's the key to being a vibrant church. And my answer is no. Vitally important. But that's not the key. Well, if we were just a serving church, we need more people serving. And serving's a big thing at South. And some of you are burned out from serving. And some of you are afraid that you're going to be asked to serve. And some of you have been asked too much to serve. And some of you are the 20% that serves all the time. That's the key. If we just had more people serving. And my answer is no. You know what we need? Worshippers. Heart worshippers. And the rest will follow. Is missions important? Yes. Is evangelism important? Yes. Is serving important? Yes. But those are all secondary if we're not worshiping in spirit and in truth. And that's what the woman needed to hear. And I believe that's what you and I need to hear. That it's all about worshiping him. Warren Worsby wrote an excellent book called Real Worship. And he said, when you have all of these other things, instead of worship as number one, it's like cut flowers who have no roots and therefore can produce no fruit. Remember that song that we sing often at communion time? Blessed be the tie that binds. 
And one of the stanzas says, Beyond the sacred page, I seek thee, Lord. My spirit pants for thee, O living word. And I remember when I used to criticize that phrase. Because I interpreted that phrase as being setting the Bible aside. I want to go past the Bible or bypass the Bible. I want to, you know, forget the Bible and get to Jesus. But that's not what Mary meant at all. Mary Lathbury, who wrote the song, she meant through the Bible and beyond. In other words, I'm not satisfied with knowledge. I want to meet the living Savior beyond this sacred page that takes me to Christ. I have a real relationship with him. That's what South needs in 2019 more than anything else. And it will be the most exciting thing that you and I could ever experience. There was a song that became very popular in the mid-90s called The Heart of Worship, written by Matt Redmond. Became popular in 2001. Well, it was popular before that, but Michael W. Smith recorded the song and it became extremely popular. But here's the history of it. Matt Redmond attended a church in England and he said there was a dynamic missing in our worship, so the pastor said. So the pastor did a brave thing. The pastor got rid of the sound system and all of the instruments and said we're only going to sing with our voices until we get back to the heart of worship. His point was we lost our way in worship and the way to get it back, the heart of worship, was to strip everything else from worship. Reminding the church family that they were to be producers and not spectators. By the way, in worship, there's the audience of one. That's God. I went to hear, hear a comedian once at the Wharton Center, a clean comedian, a rare commodity, but he was very good. And I went to that show, and the show was not done by me. The show was done for me. But when I come to worship, it's not a show done for me. It's done by me, right? The audience is one. At the Wharton, the audience was 1,000. The performer was one. It's flipped in worship. At the end, that comedian said, I want to thank you so much for coming. Now, really, the experience was for him and for us. We enjoyed the laughter. He enjoyed the money he got. He's a rather wealthy man. And so he said at the end, I want to thank you so much for coming. If it wasn't for you then this wouldn't happen. But when you come to worship, God doesn't say that. It is for both of us, but he's the audience of one. Worship is not done something done for us, it's something done by us. And that's what they made known in this church in England, that it's all about Jesus. And so he wrote that song with that amazing chorus that emphasizes the fact that the heart of worship is about Christ. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. It's all about you. I'm sorry, Lord, for the things I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. Now, those may not be the greatest lyrics in the world, even compared to the 
uh, to the Charles Wesley and Isaac Watts, but I'll tell you this, that song rocked hearts and brought them back to Christ. And that's exactly what you and I need. We need to come back to the heart of worship. Maybe you haven't left, and that's great. Maybe you've never been there. It's the greatest place in the world. And if you've wandered away, let me encourage you to come back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we ask that you will make us true worshipers. The goal of our church is not to develop workers, but to develop worshipers. And I'm amazed when I read this portion of scripture this morning to see that God is our Father, and God is a spirit, and God is looking, seeking for worshipers. So it's vitally important. May we experience true worship in this place to the glory and praise of God. And it's in the name of Christ our Savior we pray. Amen.